0: Welcome back to Bodies in the Bayous, Season 2, The Candyman. I'm Morgan. And I'm Gretchen. The Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Coral, also known as Houston's mass murderer, stalked young boys in Houston and surrounding suburbs from 1970 to 1973, along with two teenage accomplices, Elmer Wayne Henley and David Owen Brooks. Elmer Wayne Henley would put a stop to Coral's reign of terror, by killing him with his own gun. Season two, episode eight, giving a name to the remains part three, the unidentified and missing.
1: So in our timeline, this is the, about the time period when Brooks, introduces elmer wayne henley to coral and with the idea that henley is going to become coral's next victim but we've talked about this um in earlier episodes coral seems to take a liking to henley and henley then becomes coral's next um accomplice so in his confession, Henley says in March of 72, Henley's family was in dire financial straits, so he accepted the offer to bring victims to Coral for $200 per victim. He said that Coral knew, he said he told Coral that he knew where to find a boy and they went out driving that night. They picked up a boy at the corner of 11th and Studwood and lured him to Coral's home to smoke some marijuana. Um, While in the apartment, so Coral had taught Henley how to do this handcuff trick, um, and basically what it was was that he would hide a key in his back pocket, and um, he would show the boy how he could magically get out of the handcuffs, and then he would dare them to try the same thing. He did that with this uh, young man and when the young man was in the handcuffs and secure, he then left the apartment. He said that he believed that um, Henley sold the boy to Dallas and then he later found out that the boy was actually killed. This matches up slightly to the timeline of an unidentified uh, victim. This is actually the last unidentified remains of corals that is still to this day waiting to be identified. So this victim was found in the boat shed wearing striped swim shorts, uh, a t-shirt with kind of a peace sign and possibly USA on it and then cowboy uh, boots. The uh, remains are said to have good teeth with no fillings, dark hair about seven inches long, The boy would be between the ages of 17 and 20 years old. He would stand between 5'2 and 5'7. When interviewed about these remains, Brooks did not seem to know anything about this victim, which led investigators to believe that this victim was possibly taken with Henley there but not Brooks. The DNA uh, for this victim was tested against 14 possibilities, and so far they have not come back with a match. There have been two facial reconstructions of this victim and still no matches um, as of 2016. So we will put the facial reconstructions out on Facebook and people can look at them. But in 2016, investigators received a letter stating that this boy could be Bobby French. The letter contained photographs of Bobby French. He does bear a striking resemblance to the Reconstruction. The problem is there's no missing persons reports on Bobby French. The letter does not contain information on who Bobby French is, who his family could be, when he went missing. Um, So there... We're also going to post the picture that the me- has been released in the media on Bobby French.
0: I would say there's a striking resemblance. Absolutely. I mean, like, when you look at the eyes and, like, you know, like the upper part of his face, definitely. Right. Um, you know, it's strange with this anonymous letter here is that, first of all, they don't want to be identified, I guess, to right. police officers. And you wonder why, because they care enough to to make the effort to send it. So you wonder like what the involvement or how they know this Bobby. Um, But I mean, they obviously know him because they have physical pictures of him, you know? So, and then, you know, just the fact that there isn't a missing person's report on him, you know, do they think it's just a runaway at that point? Like he ran away and that's why they didn't do it. You know, you just don't know. I guess
1: to me, you know, the the Bobby French letter is always one of those like red herrings, you know, could it possibly be sending um, investigators off in the wrong direction? Is it possible that this is a hoax? You know, you've taken the the time to actually send a photograph right but not send any information that says hey this is bobby french he was um born on such and such a date lived in such and such an area went missing on this time period. So you're not giving investigators information. You're just basically being like, could it be Bobby French? Now, I can see that when um, people are working with like the um, name us website and then trying to match that up to missing persons where you would say, could could these remains match this missing persons where you would get people who don't know anything about either of, of them. But when you have somebody who's coming forward and saying, I believe this could be Bobby French, I just don't know what what's the point of not including any information.
0: Mm-hmm. And I mean, and it's possible too that this picture or pictures that have been sent in aren't even Bobby Brooks. I mean, it could be somebody. Bobby French. Or Bobby French. Right. Sorry. But yeah, I mean, it could be totally random.
1: Right. And I guess that would be the... the Kind of the request for information is if people can take a look at this photograph of Bobby French, if that person can be identified as somebody else, then you might be able to rule this in as a hoax. Mm -hmm. Um, And, or if you can identify somewhere out there a missing Bobby French, then at least, you know, DNA can be taken and matched to the DNA that Harris County is saying that they have. So, um but then you know it's just it's incredibly confusing I would one last part on the Bobby French thing I would say that Bobby French would probably not be this individual's name if he went missing in the 1970s my guess would be that Bobby was a nickname and his first name might be Robert French
0: Mm -hmm. well Um, and it's possible too that say you know Robert French's family came forward and said you know, we think he's missing, the police at this point may not have even filed it as a missing persons, you know, right. And that's historically kind of how they went about things. It is
1: very possible that we're looking at a case that was never filed as a missing persons or was filed as a missing persons. And then just kind of got lost in the shuffle, Mm -hmm. which we do know has happened to cases before, um, where it's kind of lost to time. But You still have to say to yourself, somebody took the time to come forward. So why not go forward with more information about how you know this Bobby French, like more information so that that can actually be let out? Mm -hmm. Because even if all of his family members and maybe didn't have any siblings are past, police can go out and get DNA samples from closer relatives to actually make that connection. We know that today. Right. But then the last part of this is in searching the message boards and the um, of what's out there, there is another family who has come forward and set posted on social media and said that they believe the remains belong to a family member named David Yeager. David Yeager went missing on February 7th, 1971, in Shreveport, Louisiana, was possibly hitchhiking to Centaria College um David was 17 years old weighed between 220 and 250 pounds he was 5'6 to 5'8 he was last seen wearing black pants and a white shirt now obviously the clothing description
0: here does not match that's true but that doesn't mean that he didn't you know change him into something to take pictures of him or do something really weird you know there is a couple things just when we were talking about this earlier was it doesn't really fit the profile of his known victims. doesn't mean that he's not.
1: No, it does seem like they went after smaller victims because they would have more control. Mm -hmm. When you look at David Yeager, he does seem to be a bit of a larger victim that they'd have a little less control of. Mm -hmm. The other, um, you know, I feel bad because this family is obviously... David has been missing for so many years and it would be nice if this family had some answers, but he, Shreveport, Louisiana just seems like a stretch. If he was hitchhiking in Shreveport, it just seems like a pretty far stretch to put him into Houston. And, and they, from what we know, Coral pretty much picked up all those victims around this area. Mm -hmm. He definitely had his
0: uh, radius of where he liked to stay within. But again, that's that control that he liked to have.
1: Yeah. And I mean, not to say that it couldn't be a possibility because I I think you have to open yourself up to all possibilities here, especially with the part and the talking of there possibly being some human trafficking here of young boys. And that seems to come into the conversation a lot. It, we don't see any evidence of that. But I still feel like there is a very, very good possibility that Coral, at least before he had his two accomplices, if not during, could have been
0: using some sort of human trafficking type ring. You know, and this is something that I've been kind of meaning to ask for a while because this seems to come up often is this whole being linked back to human sex trafficking with homosexuals or whatever during this time frame. Was that something that was going on a lot and that was making kind of headline news? We already know that Houston is one of the largest cities for that period, right? But was that in the 70s, like, something that was prevalent? Like, was it in your face, I guess? So I think it was happening a
1: lot more than um, even is known today of this type of human trafficking of these young boys for this type of purpose. Um, and certainly I would say to anybody, yes, I believe it was also happening with young girls too. But for for our purposes, yes, I think it was happening a lot with young boys. Was it making headlines? No, but this case brings that forward and you start to see it making headlines at that point. Mm -hmm. And so when they talk about a homosexual trafficking ring out of Dallas, and you think to yourself, okay, that's something that he just told them, but there's no truth to it. What comes out after Coral is killed is yes, indeed, there was a homosexual trafficking ring in Dallas of young boys. Uh,
0: Yeah, okay. So is that something that as a parent during this time period of young boys, would you say you've got to really be careful because this is happening? Kind of like whole, how we talk about the whole stranger danger thing that's come out of right. some of these, these cases like farther on in history or in time. But I mean, would that be something that these kids are like fearful of, I guess?
1: No, I would think that that was something that really and truly at that point in time, it wasn't really known Uh what's going on. Uh I think it definitely as you get into Coral and then you also have uh, a little bit later on John Wayne Gacy who takes part in the same type of activity in a different part of the country, but um, then it starts to come out about this. But what comes out from Coral is there is a bust in Dallas that happens shortly after his death um they there is an attempt to try to tie that to coral law enforcement comes out pretty early on and says there is no link between coral and what happened in Dallas how they know that for sure I don't know um I I don't even think that to this day that you could say that coral didn't have anything to do with that or didn't know anything about that because the one thing that does come out with that bust in Dallas is it does seem like the individuals involved in Dallas in that trafficking ring in Dallas had also been in Houston prior to that Mm -hmm. and so when you look at a case like this with this uh poor David individual who's up towards Shreveport that puts you a lot closer into that Dallas area. And you do tend to wonder, is it possible that David was picked up by somebody involved in that um, trafficking ring in Dallas? Yes. I, I think that that's always a possibility then for him to somehow be given to Coral, Maybe, maybe not. Um, One plug that I do want to give here, just because on the um, message board, there was a lot of talk about genetic genealogy. If you have your DNA out there in one of those sites, Ancestry, 23andMe, any of those paid sites, go ahead and upload it for free to GEDmatch.com. A lot of people think that Jedmatch is, is just kind of used for law enforcement to to find the perpetrators of crime. It's always important for people to remember that Jedmatch
0: helps us identify these victims. Right. And then just to kind of piggyback on the whole like homosexual sex trafficking ring, you know, in the Hilligrist case, you know, where they hired that private investigator it did come back that you know it's possible that you know there is this homosexual ring that he could have been you know taken for and you know that led his mother down on that path of also trying to seek out is that a possibility right and i think that's a great point because as i have run across
1: that with the investigators and her consistently turning her information over to law enforcement I have started to wonder whether or not law enforcement's bust up there in Dallas might have possibly come from information that they finally went and looked at again that came through that investigation. She was so close to solving this crime, you know, and, and to really having answers. You just wonder what led to Dallas.
0: Yeah. that, that... I mean, I know it's also a big city, like Houston. But I mean, is it that close?
1: They happen. You know? They happen simultaneously. Yeah. Though the Coral is shot and killed. They're they're going into the. Um, boat shed, they're recovering the bodies, they're identifying remains. And then all of a sudden on the same newspaper page, you get this information about Dallas and the ring up there and the busting and, and all of that. And then they're like, it does not tie to Houston. And then there's like a little like blurb that says, you know, but a couple of these people did leave in the Houston area at an earlier time. And you're like, well, how can you 100% say it never tied to Houston? Right. And again, that's that's out there as a, you know, that
0: was something that legitimately was going on. So and you and you do question like, or I do question for certain like Coral's using this as a way to get Henley and Brooks to bring him victims to say he's going to sell them in this ring. He did he know about what was going on in Dallas? I
1: believe that Coral had to know something about those types of trafficking rings, because there's so much truth yeah. to it. So when he's telling them and he's using that as a kind of a, a
0: tactic, he had to know something. Or that it would be a possibility. Right. Or maybe he, even if it was for his own sick gain of that's how I can get young boys, he had to know something. Yeah. Right? He knew something. There's too much, there's too much truth in that.
1: So in 2017, Josh Vargas, who we talked a little bit about this earlier, he's a movie producer who does a movie on the killings. He met with Henley's mother and actually went to the prison to meet with Henley. During those meetings, he found out that Henley's mother packed all of her son's belongings. When he went to prison, put them in a school bus that was sitting in a field in Houston. And when he's doing the movie, he basically pays the mother in order to obtain those items he uses items from the school bus as props he uses the clothes thing um for his actors to wear to gain some authenticity I guess to the film it still
0: grosses me out though it's it
1: even when I say it it grosses me out um but uh in one of the boxes that's there. He found a Polaroid of a boy who seems to be handcuffed next to a toolbox. The toolbox has been identified as, uh, Dean Corals, but the boy has never been identified. Now his photo has been compared to the, uh, photo of the unidentified remains that we have. And from what I understand, they say the facial, facial features do not match. I would,
0: I would have to agree with that. You know, one thing that was so, um, shocking to me, I guess, is when you're showing me the picture that they find this Polaroid, I look at you and I'm like, this kid already looks kidnapped, right? Right. Because when we were talking about it, I didn't realize that's where they had found it. And I mean, it's, it's, it's really a picture that will leave you kind of speechless because of what you can almost see the fear in this kid's eyes. I would have to agree though, because I think with the facial reconstruction, that they do have of the identify unidentified he looks older than the kid that's in the picture too. the unidentified mm-hmm. one does
1: um and i'll i'll agree with that the hair it is it is does appear to be brown hair does appear to be a little bit longer brown hair um so those features to me do match i have a hard time i don't i don't necessarily see how they're um matching the facial features but again i think that Uh, The technology is so much better that they have different points that they can match that when I look at it as the naked eye, and also I'm not very good at facial features anyway, um, I don't,
0: I I think they look similar, but yeah, and I mean, the picture is so well, it's dated, I mean, it's from the 70s, right? So, but it's so unclear, like, it's hard to look at that picture to me also, and think, Oh, that looks like so-and-so. I mean, it's hard to see. Right. The picture is not very clear. Again, like you said, you put it in a computer and you start lightening up certain pigments and all that, possibly, yes. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised because I don't see handcuffs in the picture.
1: But apparently they have managed to identify that he is handcuffed. And the toolbox thing, that they've managed to identify that toolbox as belonging to Dean Coral, that to me is a little surprising too, that they've made that... Um, now I do know that they have some very very good photographs of Dean Correll's, uh residence, things that were in his residence and stuff like that. So, but they still can't tell you exactly where that photograph is taken. Yeah, either. and I mean
0: that's really weird. Like I was because when you look at the box that's there, I wouldn't have even known that was a toolbox, right? right? It almost looked like a deep freezer to me or something. But it looks so worn out; like right. it looks very beat up or whatever you want to say this old who knows how long you've had it but when you do look at it the angle of that picture you see this bar that goes through it Uh and i'm like what is that it's almost like they're in a i don't know like closet and they're getting that angle of the Uh clothing rack or the clothing bar that you'd hang it on or something it's it's weird like that what is that bar i don't know you know like when you're trying to think like where is this like where is this you know the
1: The thing about this, though, is if this is actually a photograph of a victim that has yet to be identified, there are several questions that that are here. Is this a victim who survived and so has not never came forward because of what this meant? And of course, if that happened, you know, you certainly can understand how you would not want to be involved in this. But if this is a photograph of a picture of somebody who has not been identified at this point, whose body or remains might be out there, and somebody might still be missing a family member, this really does need to be identified. Mm -hmm. Last part of this really goes back to this trafficking ring. (laughs) So one of the things that when I've done a little research of the trafficking ring, it does seem like there are photographs of boys with the trafficking ring. And so you wonder whether or not this was a photograph that was given to them but when they come back and say no we can identify the toolbox then you're like okay well then obviously this is um a photograph that coral or henley has taken Mm -hmm. when josh vargas was doing some of this investigation it does seem like he has also tied this photograph to henley's polaroid camera so, which I'm assuming was in the bus that Henley had at that time.
0: Okay, so since they can actually link this photograph or this Polaroid back to Henley's camera, are there more photographs that were recovered during that time?
1: As far as I know, no. So that that's, to me, also the big question. You know, why is there just one photograph?
0: I mean... Yeah, I mean, I guess why take the one? I mean, his mother did pack up all his stuff. So it's possible if she ran across any more pictures, that maybe she just got rid of it. It, It's possible. I mean, Certainly, I don't think she admits to that. mm -mm.
1: Um, But from everything that I have seen, you know, from evidence that was was taken in, I have not seen anywhere else
0: that they mention that there were photographs of these victims. I guess that's what I was going to ask you next was... When the cops, I'm sure that at some point they had to go through his stuff, you know, and you his- would think, but
1: I actually don't find anything that says they went to Henley's house, issued a search warrant and went through Henley's stuff
0: uh-huh.
1: or went to Brooks's house, issued a search warrant and went through Brooks's stuff. So from what I can tell, I don't know
0: that that was actually done. And, okay, so that would be shocking. So, because you, I thought, well, maybe if the cops had gone through stuff, maybe they got any other pictures right. and this happened to be, you know, in between a, a book or something along the way. But
1: when know. you look at the
0: trial
1: and the different things that come up in the trial and then what comes up in the appeals process and all of that kind of stuff, there's nothing that comes up that says, and we have these photographs that we found when we served a search warrant. There's nothing that comes up that says we served a search warrant at their houses and searched their homes for other
0: evidence yeah
1: now if they had gotten permission from henley and brooks to search those homes they wouldn't have needed a search warrant so that is a possibility that they didn't necessarily need a search warrant but it doesn't it doesn't seem like there ever comes up the
0: search of their homes well you know and the other thing just for the sake of discussion You know, Hen. You think? Do you personally think that Henley would have gone out and found victims and maybe try to do something on his own? And this was like him doing that, and Coral didn't know about it necessarily, or I don't. Okay.
1: I I don't, and I've also have thought about when you look into this trafficking, pedophile, homosexual trafficking ring, you don't you see where there's the discussion of photographs, where um, it seems like the boys that were um, being kind of sold or, or transferred on that, there were photographs of those individuals. Because of the connection to the toolbox, it doesn't seem like this is a photograph that comes from that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, and then, you know, the work that they've done to try to tie that back to the fact that, Henley had this Polaroid, the, Polaroid the, the photos in his possession, and yet there's the toolbox that's now identified as being Dean Quarles. It seems like they've done a huge amount of forensic investigation of just the photograph itself, that they have a pretty good idea of the photograph, but they've interviewed Henley he
0: doesn't seem to give any information about the photograph either. Okay. So I find that to also be something just now kind of popped in my head. So I'm just going to say it, but if they know that that is coral's toolbox, they can obviously say with certainty in their heads, that that is his, why can they not identify where that was? You know what I mean? Like if they've done like that toolbox, it looks pretty large they're not huffing that around all right. over the place. So I, I do find that a little odd, you know? So I think in
1: today's um, investigations, they would have gone back to ever if this had happened today, they would go back to every single apartment, every single house, every single area that you knew that that any of these individuals were involved in they would have taken very detailed pictures and those pictures could be compared to any of the photographs like this that have come forward um, to try to do identification of those areas back then it does not seem like they went back to they do take very detailed pictures of the house and the items found in the house which is where i think they have the picture of the toolbox for comparison purposes but they don't seem to go back to other apartment complexes and take pictures of those apartment complexes because they, I don't think they needed to, they, this case, when they present it to the jury seemed to be that they, it was a slam dunk. And so they didn't feel like they needed anything
0: else. Well, and I mean, and granted, they wouldn't have had that picture anyways, during the time of the trial and all that. So, I mean, i'll give them that but it just seems weird
1: yeah it's difficult i think it's a picture in a closet you do think it's a closet I, I, how I, do you get that angle i don't know because I, you would have to be
0: above that bar
1: i guess because i feel like i don't know i'm not a, i'm not an expert i'm not either
0: where is like what is the angle of this you know it's
1: uh it's something i do feel like you know, and it's strange because on the message boards, I you you get a little bit, but I don't know that
0: anybody's really nailed that down either. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I mean, we're probably the two worst people when it comes to photographs. Oh like yes, yeah. because we're always like, what is that? Like, not even just in this case, but just in anything that we're looking at, we're always like, I can't see it. You know. So,
1: but I think you know what's important with this is there is possibly another victim yeah. out there. Yes. You know, um, and trying to identify
0: who that is, e- even if this child is alive he is still a victim.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know what I mean? So, I
0: mean, there's definitely that victim out there.
1: Okay. So we're going to cover Mark Scott. Mark Scott was a good friend of David Brooks. They actually grew up together. David Brooks would spend many nights over at Mark Scott's house while they were growing up. One time the boys, when the boys were young, um, Brooks accidentally shot Mark Scott in the leg with a BB gun. When he was 17 years old, he was arrested for carrying a knife. He was upset about the arrest and he told his mother he planned to go to Mexico for the weekend with a friend named Robert Scott, who is not a relation just to get out of town for a few days, on April 20th, 1972. He planned a return on April 24th, 1972. When he did not return, the family drove around the neighborhood. They called friends and classmates, asking anyone if they had seen him. So the part of this that I don't really know is how much um, talking to uh, Robert Scott they had. But for, the family did seem to have enough knowledge to say that that they believed that Mark Scott was back in the Houston area. Um, On April 25th, though, his family received a postcard from him saying, how are you doing? I'm in Austin for a few days. I have a job making $3 an hour. Nothing about the postcard seemed right to his mother. Mark would not just do that. She feared the worst. He didn't take any of his clothes or any of his belongings. He didn't even take his beloved motorcycle. So David Brooks and Henley both talk about Mark Scott in, his con- in their confession. They don't really give you a clear understanding of where they came in contact with Mark Scott. But what they do say is that he was tied up, um, had managed to get one of his hands free, and then he had a knife on him at the time. He pulled the knife and he fought back against Coral, taking a swing at Coral, even striking him, cutting through his shirt and scratching him. He still had one hand free. Coral grabbed the hand with the knife, and Henley ran out of the room, grabbed the gun, running back and pointing it at Mark. And at that point in time, Mark gives up. Um, Henley Brooks claims that Henley was actually the one who strangled Mark Scott and killed him. And then they took Mark Scott's uh, body and buried him on High Island. So sadly, Mark Scott's father spent uh, many years walking the shores of High Island, looking for his son's remains, digging in several of the dunes out there. But then in 1994, the medical examiner's office contacted the family saying that they had identified Mark's remains stored at the Houston medical examiner's office through DNA. So his parents actually disputed this. They uh, did not actually believe that those remains identified as his belonged to their son. One of the reasons for that was the body identified as Mark's had a broken collarbone, and they said Mark never had a broken collarbone, but he did have a broken thumb. Unfortunately, the body that was identified as Mark's, um, the breaking thumb thing was hard to confirm because the parts of his hands and fingers were not actually, those remains were not actually recovered. One other reason that they did not believe that these remains belonged to their son was that there's, that Brooks's confession said that their son was buried on High Island. The medical examiner's office insisted that this was a body and the family, the parents, um, even though they continued to have some doubt, the remains were turned over to them. So, the remains were cremated and buried in the family's plot. It wasn't until 2006 when the medical examiner's office began to look into Mark Scott's remains again and noticing that luckily they had actually saved some of those remains back, they sent them in for DNA testing in 2011 for a more accurate DNA testing. And it was determined that these remains were not the remains of Mark Scott, but actually the remains of Stevie
0: Sickman. So, you know, this is not the first time that we've heard this with the remains. Is it just because there are so many victims here that this is happening? Or is it so like lack of... So that is the difficulty. You, you, know, you have like,
1: so many victims and you have a lot to compare them to because you have a lot of cases. I mean, we've talked in the in several other episodes about just how many open uh, missing persons cases there were back then for boys in that Houston Heights area. Um, they did have Mark Scott's name from bro- both Brooks and Henley, so they knew he was one of the victims. But without DNA testing and because of the dental records, you know, a lot of what you have to identify skeletal remains back in that time period, that's difficult, you know? And so, I think you're going to have some misidentifications. It's just, unfortunately, with that many remains and with the difficulty of trying to identify them. Now, the broken collarbone probably should have put them off into another direction. The DNA though, in 1994, that identifies him, when they went back and looked at that DNA, um, it identified him as possibly being Mark Scott, but a large, also included that it could be a large percentage of the population. So it's not great DNA evidence. And at that point, instead of really pushing forward and saying, this is your son, I think waiting for better testing might have been the idea. But when, when you say wait for better testing, people, that's the best testing that's come along. It'd be like saying, well, touch DNA, we can go farther than that. I don't think people even nowadays are like, oh, well, DNA testing is going to get even better know well, because
0: that happens over time as we progress in science right so, right i mean that's the the it of it and you know and i'm sure there was some pressure um from the medical examiner's office on his family to do something with the remains i mean they can't hold him forever and if right. they truly are saying we believe this is your son even though you may not believe it you're kind of responsible for it because right. in their mind that's what they're that's not in their mind but scientifically at that time that is that is what they have that is the best that they could do Mm -hmm. right and
1: and so I think there was I think there was some pressure to finally get closure to the remains that were left Mm -hmm. and unfortunately mistakes had happened the sad thing about this is though so because his body mark scott's body has never been recovered because of brooks and henley's um confession you can almost guarantee that it was buried on high island Mm -hmm. because high island was underwater during hurricane ike the fact is that those remains are probably no longer there so you will You'll probably never be able to recover Mark Scott's remains, unless somehow they were recovered at another time and just have not been connected to this, which I doubt. I mean, High Island, pretty much at any point in time, remains recovered at High Island. This is looked at as a possibility. Oh, I'm sure.
0: You know, I'm um, definitely sure of that.
1: But I think you know, sadly, Mark Scott's remains are not. You're just not going to find them. Mm-hmm. But for Stevie Stickman's family, now he, the remains that were cremated were actually turned over to his family. Mm-hmm. So, so they have the answers that they need. One last thing I think just before finishing up here today is that when we're talking about the uh, homosexual trafficking ring that was happening in the Dallas area, it's not in any way, shape, or form that we're looking at that homosexuals leads to pedophilia. I think the phrase that we're using is one that was historically was being used, you know, but from our perspective, we're not looking at that at all. We do know that when you're talking about trafficking young boys, that you're talking about trafficking them to pedophiles, not to homosexuals. Right. So, yeah, it's just that that's the term that was historically being used at that point in time. That's what those were being called. And so for that point, that's how we're kind of referring to it today. But we do, we do understand that that's
0: not in any way, shape or form being homosexual doesn't make you a pedophile. Right. And, Even, it, and it is very sensitive. I mean, it's a right. sensitive topic. It's not something that's easy for us to talk about, you know, um, so we did want to make that right. Clear. And I think that, you know, also
1: being very clear about that, the boys who were trafficked into that were victims. It was not, it was not like they were, you know, part of some sort of homosexuality or anything like that. These were victims mm-hmm. who were being trafficked. Absolutely. So thank you.
0: Thanks for joining us today. We always love to hear from our listeners. So please contact us with any questions that you might have. Um, You can reach us on our Facebook page, Bodies in the Bayou's. You can always email us at bodiesinbayou's at hotmail.com. And don't forget to listen to us wherever you stream your podcast.